So for some, it is a, um, it is a nameless, faceless sense of dread that they just can't seem to shake. Uh, for others, it's this relentless series of questions that, that leave them feeling paralyzed. And for others, it is a, it is a hand-wringing, chest-tightening, constant consideration of the worst-case scenario. It manifests itself in a thousand different ways, but it has one name, anxiety. Maybe you know this, but it is on the rise in our world, in particular in our part of the world. According to the uh, Department of Health, there are now about 40 million U.S. adults who suffer from some kind of anxiety-related disorder, about 18% of the U.S. population. And again, those numbers are rising. And depending on who you talk to, uh, there's a number of different factors that play into this rise of anxiety in our world. Uh, some professionals argue that we live in a particular day and age which provides a perfect recipe for incessant worry. We live in a day and age where we are very blessed, but the very things that bless us often add burden to us. For example, we live in an age of unprecedented technology, information, affirmation, and opportunity. So let's just look at the information that we have. In, in previous generations, it's not that horrible things didn't happen in the world, but we lived in a world where ours was small, and we didn't have to hear about all the horrible things that happened in the world. But now, because of the information age, we now have every single horrible headline from whatever happens in Kathmandu to the Kardashians scrolling over our phone. And there's no way to avoid it. Not only that, but we, we see the success stories and the highlight reel of every single one of our peers running before our eyes on our Instagram feed. We have more information than ever. And it, it nurses our fears and it nurtures our anxieties. We live in an era of constant affirmation, which in and of itself is not a bad thing, but we are constantly hearing that we should make the most of this one life that we've, we have. We should live our best life, not tomorrow, not yesterday, but today. Live your best life now. Actualize all of your abilities. Maximize all of your talents. Don't miss out on your one shot to make the most of your life. And that ramps up pressure on us. And then there are all the opportunities, all the choices for everything, all of the time. Like, what do you want to do for dinner tonight used to be a kind of simple question to answer. And it's not anymore. If you want to stay in, well, what do you want to do when you stay in? You can order food from your phone from anywhere in the city and have it delivered to your door. Or, or you know what we could do? We could have a gourmet meal with excellent ingredients delivered to our door. Well, let's do that. Okay, well, do you want to do Blue Apron, Fresh Direct, or do you want to do any one of the other 5,000 that are in front of you? It is no wonder that we are so anxious all the time. Today, we're continuing a teaching series that we started last week called Spirituality in the Shadows, where we're, we're trying to, to take the truths of the Christian faith and apply them to the darker seasons of our life. Those seasons where, like last week, we are, we are deeply afraid of something and kind of connected to it this week where we are anxious and worried about something. Next week, we're going to talk about doubt and despair. Our, our ultimate aim is to, to connect the promise of who Jesus is and all that he's accomplished 
to those dark and difficult seasons of life we typically don't talk about. So this morning, it's anxiety. Now, I recognize that there are many facets to the issue of anxiety. Uh, there, is the, there is the spiritual aspect, but there's also the, the biological aspect. Uh, there, is the, there is the nature versus nurture debate. Is anxiety something that is nurtured in you or something that's natural in you? Is it, a, is it a reflection of your biochemistry or some trauma in your past? And the answer to all those things is probably yes. And I don't pretend to be an expert in all those other factors of anxiety. Tonight, today rather, we're going to talk about the spiritual aspect of it. But I encourage you, if you really, really wrestle with anxiety, to believe me when I say to you that God has appointed really incredible people in various fields to help you deal with this from all the different directions. Not just the spiritual one, but the but the biological ones, the family of origin ones, the nature versus nurture ones. And I encourage you to seek those out and to deal with your anxiety, to, to wrestle with it holistically. That's what healthy people do. But this morning, we're going to talk theology and spirituality and anxiety. Uh, from a spiritual perspective, anxiety is really a matter of perspective. Anxiety is about a, uh, a problem in perspective. When you read through the scriptures and it talks about an anxious heart or disquieted thoughts, the scriptures give you the sense that, that it's about the person who is anxious focusing on the wrong things. It's a problem of perspective. Which is why you'll often hear words like this from Psalm 121. Psalm 121 says this. It says, I lift my eyes to the hills. So the implication is I'm looking at my problems, and now I lift my eyes to the hills, to the problem solver. Off my problems onto the protector, the provider, the problem solver. I change my perspective. From where does my help come from? Does it come from my own two hands? Does it come from my context? No, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. I remember when I was little, going over to my grandparents' house, and, and I loved to sit in my grandfather's oversized recliner. I would rock back and forth, which he didn't really appreciate, and I would mess with the little table piled high with stuff that sat next to his recliner. Uh, on this little table was a pile of, of old issues of TV Guide. Remember TV Guide? And, and about a half dozen remote controls, and then a pile of prescription medications. And then on top of all that was this giant magnifying glass. And my, my grandfather would use the magnifying glass to read the TV guide so he could find which episode of MASH he wanted to watch on reruns. And then he would use one of the half dozen remote controls to turn the volume up to 1,000 <laughs> to scare me out of his chair. <laughs> I remember sitting in that chair, and, and I would often grab the magnifying glass. I loved to play with it. And what I would do, I, I remember, I would, I would hold it like right up to my eye, like right next to my eye. Because when you did that, it was really cool. Everything kind of outside of the purview of the recliner would disappear. You couldn't see anything far away anymore. But everything that was like in your lap or in your hand suddenly became massive. And, and it overwhelmed your perspective. Your knees were huge. Your shirt was huge. Your hands. You could see in, in gruesome detail everything that was buried underneath your fingernails and every pore of your skin. And for a six-year-old, that was super cool. I bring that up because, because in my conversations 
with family and friends who have really wrestled with anxiety. The picture they paint for me of what it's like to be overcome with worry is, is well, it's, it's, it's like living with, with a pair of magnifying glasses like glued to both of your eyes. It is difficult to see much beyond a very small circle. And everything that's like in your lap or in your hands, everything that's like right in front of you, the question that's in front of you, the choice that's in front of you, the problem that's in front of you, is kind of like all you can see. It gets magnified. It overwhelms your entire vision. It becomes all you can see. Your perspective is only your problem in your hand or on your lap. And not only that, but your hands are magnified too, meaning that that your role in having to fix it all, to answer the question, to conquer it all, is also magnified. So kind of all you can see is the problem and that you've got to do something about it. Which is why very often you, you, will, you will talk to an anxious person and almost every sentence starts with I. I don't know what to do. I can't answer this. I can't conquer this. I can't deal with this. And it's not because they're being a narcissist, not at all. It's because all they can see is this giant problem in their giant hands, and their own two hands are the only things that they can think of to try and fix it. And it's swallowed their perspective whole. And it leaves them kind of feeling paralyzed. Which is why when, when you're trying to love an anxious person, and you can be very well intended, but one of the worst things that you can do is tell them what to do. It's very tempting to say, well, well, just try harder, or just do these things, or just have more faith, or just make the decision. But from the anxious person's perspective, all you're doing when you, when you tell them to do something is you're putting another thing inside of their hands and just increasing the pressure that they're already feeling, and it fixes nothing. So then what's the, what's the right way to approach it, the right way to understand it from a spiritual perspective, perhaps? Well, we got a glimpse of that in Psalm 94 that we read a little earlier. Psalm 94 tells the story of a season in life for the, for the people of Israel where, where there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry, a lot of risk, and yet the Lord sustained them through it and saw them through it and opened their eyes up to hope in the middle of it. And it's instructive for us because it tells us how God loves his people through anxiety and worry and risk and fear. So, so let's take another look at Psalm 94. Uh, we're going to start at verse 14 and then go verses 17 through 19. It says, For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. Now he's going to go on to describe the kind of help that God gave. How did God help in the anxious time? When I thought, when I thought, oh no, my foot's going to slip, your steadfast love, your unending love for me held me up. Now he's going to expand on that. When the cares, literally trans translated the disquieting thoughts of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. What, what, what got them through, the psalmist says, was not the Lord showing up and exhorting them to try harder in the anxious times, but the Lord showing up and making his presence known to them in the form of words of consolation and comfort. In other words, in words of promise. I am here with you, and here is what is true for you, 
in the middle and the midst of all the things that are going on with you. In the middle of the anxious moment, God showed up and he quieted anxiety, not by giving them a list, do this, not even by giving them logic. It's not as bad as it seems. Think about this. Instead, what he gives them is love. He gives them his loving presence. I am here. I have not abandoned you. And here are all of the things that are still true for you, even though the only things you can see right now are all the problems. He quiets anxiety with his loving presence. And the reason this is so effective in the psalm and for you and me is because it gives an opportunity for the anxious member of God's family to lift their eyes up off of their problem and onto the hills, so to speak. To lift their eyes off of themselves and onto something else, namely the person and the work of God. I want you to think of anxiety now not as not as magnifying glasses on the eyes, but also think of it as think of it as a boy in a boat. A boy in a boat who is riding the waves of worry. And at the front of that boat, at the bow of that boat, uh, is a rope. A rope is tied to the front of the boat that is typically used to kind of anchor the boat uh, to the bottom of the sea or to tie the boat to something strong on the shoreline. But in this particular moment, that that rope that's tied to the bow of the boat is wrapped around the boy in the boat. And he's holding on tight to it. And for whatever reason, he's wrongly thinking that if I wrap this boat, if I wrap this rope rather around me and I hold it tightly, I can, I can keep the boat steady. I, I can calm myself. I can, I can steady myself in the middle of the waves. But what he's lost sight of is the fact that the only way to keep the boat secure with the rope in the middle of the storm is to tie it to something where? Outside of the boat. You have to tie it to something outside of the boat, something bigger and stronger outside of your situation. And so when God shows up to his people and he says, hey, listen to my voice, listen to my voice. I love you. I haven't forsaken you. Here are all the things that are true for you that have nothing to do with what's in your lap or the strength of your own two hands. What he's doing is he's taking the rope off from around the boy and he's pulling it out of the boat and he's tying it to something bigger and stronger. He's tying it to himself. Again, this is instructive for us when we want to love someone well who's going through anxiety. What they don't need is a bunch of to-dos or a bunch of exhortations of things they should try and, and consider or do better. All we're doing when we do that is we're just piling more stuff in the boat. What we need is to saddle up alongside of them, to kind of whisper from along the shoreline and say, I see you, I see you. I can see that you're going up and down and you're struggling. And I want you to know that I love you. And I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I know you are up and down, but I'm here, safe on the shore. And I see you and I love you. And, and throw that rope to me. And let me hold on tight to it for you. And I, I want to help you however I can. How can I help you? You take the to-dos. And by doing that, you lift their eyes off of themselves and you anchor them into something outside of themselves. And that can provide peace and security and steadiness. When we're anchored to something outside of the boat, namely God and his loving people, that's what provides peace. Just show up and say, I'm here. I see you. I love you. Let me hold tight to this rope for you. 
In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, Jesus demonstrates this. He's in the middle of, of one of his most powerful and profound sermons. Not one of, it is the most powerful and profound sermon. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's like an epic long sermon, but nobody falls asleep. No one walks out of the room because it's just mesmerizing with its beauty and its truth. And towards the end of that sermon, Jesus, Jesus must have noticed some anxious hearts, some people riding the waves of worry. And he, he talks about worry and anxiety and fear, and he does precisely what we see in Psalm 94. He, he looks at the anxious people in the room and he says, think of God. I know all you can see is yourself, but think now. Think, think now of God. And let me tell you everything that's true about your Father in heaven. Tie your boat to him. Let me show you. Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 25. I'm just going to walk through these next eight verses. If you grew up going to church, these are going to sound really familiar to you. Jesus says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, about what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. They're not working like crazy and worried like crazy, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his or her span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God is so willing to clothe the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the unbelievers, they chase after all these things. And your heavenly Father, this to me is the best verse, your heavenly Father, he knows that you need them. He knows. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Speaking to the anxious heart, Jesus points out several characteristics of God. You can boil it all down to three things that Jesus says about, about the character of God to the anxious heart. He says that, that God is greater he says that God is good, and he says that God knows. God is so great, he can meet the needs of every breathing thing in all of creation, whether it's a breathing little plant or a breathing worried person, he meets the needs of all of it. That's how big and great he is. Remember that. Your father is great. Not only is that, he's good. He, he is he's so generous. He's so liberal in his love. He's just, he's just providing for the needs of, like, everybody. Like, he, he's willing to make the flower that fades beautiful. And he will, he will clothe you too, even though you are of little faith. Because it's not about how great your faith is. It's about how generous God is. He's that good. He gives to everybody. But also, and again, this is my favorite part. Verse 30, he knows what you need. He knows what you think you need. And I'll tell you what. Knowing that someone with power knows what you need is a source of great peace. Knowing that someone who matters to you knows what you need is a source of great comfort. So, so my wife and I, um, we've been married 17 years. And um, every time she goes out of town, like with her and the kids, they, they'll, they'll go up to Michigan or something like that to go see family. Um, she leaves me a long list 
of things to be mindful of, in her words, while she's gone. It's not a to-do list. It's just things that you should be aware of while I'm gone and that I would like, to you to, like for you to take care of. And the list is always really, really long. It's filled with mundane things and big chores she would like for me to tackle. And it took me 15 of our 17 years to realize why she leaves me this list. It's not because she doesn't think I'm capable of noticing and taking care of these things on my own. It's not because she doesn't think that, that, I, that I somehow don't love her enough to notice these things and take care of these things. She leaves me this list of things because it gives her peace. It gives her peace when, when someone that she, when someone that matters to her knows what matters to her. It's not a to-do list for me. It's a list of things that matter to Lisa. And it gives her peace when someone that matters to her knows what matters to her. Are you, are you kind of following with me? And the same is true for you and me when it comes to our faith. It can be a great source of peace when you realize that the one who matters most, he knows what matters most to you. He knows. He knows what matters most to you. He knows what's on your list. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in your worries. He knows what you actually need to be okay. And he's greater and he's good. And he knows. He's greater and he's good. And he knows. But as if this teaching for anxious hearts wasn't enough, Jesus goes further. And that's what his death and his resurrection are. This is Jesus becoming the embodiment of the greatness and the goodness and the knowledge that God has of the needs of mankind. Because what does Jesus do? He dies on the cross, and in dying on the cross, he confronts our greatest need. Not just mine or yours, but for everybody. Our greatest need is to know that death will not be the end. And so he dies, and he rises, and he conquers it. And he says, I've conquered it, and if you're connected to me, you conquer it too. I've defeated your greatest, most fearful enemy. And then he says, also through this, through this death, every one of your sins is forgiven. You're now right with the Father. You see, what your greatest need is, is not to have certain clothing or certain food or to be in a certain diet or have a certain certain level of pay from your job, what you, your greatest need is, is to be a member of the Father's family. And I have rebuilt that bridge through my sacrificial death and my rise from the grave. I have met your greatest need. I have shown that I am good. And I have done that for you and for everybody and for all. And now God the Father can look at you and me and he can say, you want to know how great I am, how good I am, how much I know about what you need? I have not even spared my own son. I allowed him to be torn to shreds so that your greatest enemy could be defeated and that your future could be secure. Now tell me what you have to worry about. Wow. He calms our anxiety with his presence and with those promises. He lifts our eyes off of our hands and anchors our heart to his goodness. Now, if you, if you wrestle with this, if you wrestle with this, my, my encouragement for you is to make the most of the good days. What I mean by that is, th there are days when, when you are riding the waves of anxiety and it's crazy and it's got you feeling emotion sick, and then there are days where the waters are relatively calm. And, and I encourage you to use the days that are calm to stock up for the days that are difficult. In particular, you, you need to find a way to to 
to make that presence of God and the promises that are yours in Jesus a very real thing in your life so that you're holding them in your hand on the day when the waters get crazy and all that you can see is what's in your hand so that when your, your view gets small and your breath gets short and, and your hands are overwhelmed by all these questions, all these worries and all these fears, another thing that's in your hands is this particular promise or comforting truth about God's presence. It's also there so it can be in front of your eyes. And, and there's a lot of ways to do that. Being, being a part of biblical community is a way for, for God's promises and his presence to be, to be ever present in your life. Because no matter what you're going through, if you're connected to some people of faith, they can stand next to you and say, I see you, I love you, we're here for you, here's all the things that are true for you, God still loves you, I still love you, it's going to be okay. Making worship a part of your regular rhythm ensures that no matter how you're riding the waves of worry, of anxiety, you can come to this place and you can hear God's promise that God sees you, he loves you, he's conquered the big, biggest things for you, your, your rope is anchored to something outside of the crazy boat, you're going to be okay. Uh, one practice that I have is actually one I learned about from, from one of the church fathers, as they call it. A guy named Augustine, a really old dead guy. He lived in the 4th and 5th century. And uh, he was the bishop in, in Africa, uh, northern Africa. And um, he, he wrote and taught a bit about how to have the, the person of Christ like ever present in your life. To feel like his presence was always there and that his promises were very tangible and real for you. And one of the things he wrote about in order to make the presence and the promises of Jesus like really tangible in your life were, were these three things, uh, these, these three Latin words that I'll teach you so you can impress your friends. He talks about the practice of retentio, contemplatio, and dilectio, or the practice of retention, contemplation, and delight. Uh, when, when you read his writings, he, he talks about surveying all of God's promises that are true for you because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, surveying the scriptures and, and retaining, extracting one that particularly resonates with your heart or soul. And it might be just that promise that God knows what you need. My, my promise that I hold to, that I extract from God's word is Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. That's, that's one I've extracted, I've retained. But you don't just extract one of those promises, extract one of those truths from the scriptures. What you do is you then contemplate it. You, you try to crack it open and understand it. You study it. You dive deep into it. You wrestle with it. You bring it up in Bible study here at St. Mark. You take a journal out. You start to write about it. You try to... You try to, you try to Get it down to its essence and its core so you can feel like you really wrap your arms around it. And then, and then comes the delectio, which is where we get our word from, for delectable from. You take delight in it. You turn that truth over and over in your mind and in your heart, and you try to extract every piece of comfort and joy. In particular, in bad days, you try to extract every piece of comfort and joy and peace from it you can, like a piece of great food. You just eat every little crumb and piece of it so that you can absorb every good thing that it has for you. Retensio, contemplatio, and delectio. Retain something contemplate something and then delight in it now if you if you if you're paying close attention what you'll notice is that what augustine is trying to do he's trying to redeem the habits of anxious hearts those of us who are anxious what do we tend to do we tend to look at the frightening world around us and we extract 
one particular scary thing or a set of scary things, we pull it from there, we retain it, we hold on to it. And we fix our eyes on it, and then we contemplate it. We think about it day and night. We try to crack it open. We study the scary thing. We, we ponder the scary thing. We worry obsessively about the scary thing. We contemplatio the scary thing. And then, as if that's not enough, once we think we've really discovered what the big issue is, what the big problem is, we don't like to admit this to people, but we take delight in the fright of the thing. We soak every bit of angst out of it that we can, like picking at a wound, because somehow, perversely, we think it will make things better but it makes them worse. And what Augustine is saying is this, that habit that you have of picking out something, contemplating it, and trying to suck anxiety out of it, take that and do that with him. Pull a truth, a promise that is true for you in Jesus. Crack it open and then hold it tightly. Turn it over and over in your brain, just like you do the worries around you. Turn it over and over in your brain and draw out every piece of comfort that you possibly can. Make that the habit of your heart and watch how it helps on the days when the waves are high. I have to think that uh, that Alan Gardner knew this habit well. Alan Gardner was an English missionary in the mid-19th century. In 1851, he sailed on a missionary trip uh, from England to South America. On his way to South America, he and his team were shipwrecked on a remote island. They tried to stay alive as long as they could for help to come, but help did not come. The missionary, Alan Gardner, and his entire team, they perished from starvation, thirst, and exposure. When, when searchers finally arrived at the deserted island, they found Gardner dead on the beach, and next to him was his journal. And the searchers opened up his journal, and they flipped to the last page. And on the last page, an entry made, presumably on the day that he died, there were two things written, two sentences. The first sentence was a, a little section of Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 says this, They that seek the Lord shall not want for any good thing. He was wanting for food, for safety, for rescue. Psalm 34, they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. And then scribbled right below verse 34 was a sentence of Gardner's own. And the sentence said this, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. What? Remember, he's, he's far from the known world. He's far from all family and friends. He is... He's dying of exposure, starvation, and thirst on the beach of an unknown island. And yet the last thing he scribbles in his notebook, maybe it's hallucinations, I don't know. The last thing he scribbles in his notebook is, I am overwhelmed, not by anxiety, not by fear, not by despair, but I am overwhelmed with a sense of how good God is. What? How is that even possible? I think it's possible I think it's possible when your hope and your peace are not anchored to your particular place or what's in your hands, but they're anchored to something greater outside of yourself. I think it's possible when the greatest thing in the world, the love of God, is the main thing in your life. I think it's possible 
I think it's possible when your perspective is not simply on your problems, but your perspective is on the problem solver and on the provider. I think it's possible when you hold tight to the truth that God is, that God is greater than an empty stomach and sand beneath your dying body, that God is good despite the situation you find yourself in and that God knows. He knows what your deepest need is and it isn't even for breath and for life and for rescue from an abandoned shore. It's to be a member of his family, to be forgiven of your sins, and to live with him forever. And he's met that need by not even sparing his own son. When that truth is held tight to, that's how we can be overwhelmed with the goodness of God despite what else overwhelms us. Lift your eyes to the hills. Are you anxious? Hear my voice. I see you. I love you. I know you. God is with you. Lift your eyes to the hills. Where does your help come from? Your help does not come from your own two hands. It's going to be okay. Lift your eyes to the hills. Where does your help come from? Your help comes from the Lord, and he will not let your feet slip. He who keeps you doesn't slumber. It's going to be okay. Let's pray.